there is this one question, one question that the church has been arguing over, debating, wrangling over since really the beginning of the church for 2,000 years. It's this one question that's foundational and fundamental to the church, to religious people. Religious people have been asking this one question really since people, since humanity, have been trying to connect with the divine since the beginning of creation. It's a, connect, it's a question that has split apart churches. It's a question that the disciples asked over and over again, you'll find if you're reading in the New Testament, that they argued about. It's a question that the early church was trying to figure out, and they're trying to remember what Jesus said, and they probably argued about what Jesus said, and they would say, no, 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 Jesus never said that. He would never say anything like that. Yes, he did. I heard of myself. It's a question that many of us here today have been wrestling with or we find really, really important. And if I answer this question in a way that you're not altogether comfortable with, that might just be the end of the line for you in Bruce City Church. Or if you're listening online and you followed along, this might be the last one if I answer this question wrong. The question is just this simple two words that reverberates in the soul of people. It's this question is, who's in? Super simple question. Two words that reverberate throughout church history. Two words that separate churches, that separate people, that separate families even sometimes. Who's in? Who's included? Who's welcome when we talk about the church? Who can be a part of this covenant community? Who can be a part of the church? Who's in and who's out? What do you got to do to be in? I want to know. Again, I mentioned that the disciples argued over this when Jesus was around. They didn't have it all figured out. And then Jesus ascends and he leaves. He goes goes away and they're left to figure it out for themselves with with the wisdom and counsel of the Holy Spirit. Who's in? And if you look at the book of Acts, you see this argument, this dynamic conversation talking about who's included into this family of God now. See, because the disciples, most of the early church leaders, they were good Jewish men and women. And they had a clear idea of what God, the Torah, had told them who's in and who's out. And there was a whole list of rules explaining and checkpoints as to who's in and who's out and what you've got to do to be in and who's excluded. And they knew real clearly who's not in, who's excluded. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you had any conversations like that? Have you wrestled with that? Yourself, who's in, who's out. This morning we're going to be thinking about this question, who's in, because we're going to be thinking about, for a couple of weeks now, our church's statement of faith. Now some of you internally, you wouldn't do this because you're not so rude, maybe, but you rolled your eyes internally. Statement of faith, 
We're in between sermon series here at Bruce City. We just figured it, finished this kind of epic sermon series in the book of Revelation. It took several months. I had a good time, but my headspace was just focused all on Revelation. I couldn't think about what's ahead so much at all. And then when I thought I'd have time to think about the next sermon series and study for it and prep for it, went to Argentina and didn't have as nearly as much time as I thought I would to study for it. And so as we were in Argentina, five of the six elders were there, and me and Shelly, Ian, we were talking about, what do we talk about next? What should I talk about for the next few weeks? Somebody mentioned the statement of faith, and I said, that sounds like a good foundational way to start out the year talking about our statement of faith. Whether we like it or not, belief, this one word, belief, this idea or concept, is something that we kind of center ourselves around. It's really, for many, if not most of us, a central piece of why we're here this morning. Belief. We we center ourselves around our beliefs and we're at all different points of where we are with belief and our beliefs. Some of us are here because, because we actually agree, by and large, with most everything that Bruce City Church's leadership says we believe. And if that's you, praise the Lord. That's great. Some of us are here and we, we see Jesus as the, as the center, center and the foundation, and, but there's lots of other d- doctrines that we actually disagree with the leadership at Bruce City Church. But we're here in spite of that, because we found family here. We found something that just can't be replaced. And if that's you, I want to let you know that's beautiful. Some of us are here, and this idea of belief is extremely foreign to us because we've never grown up with belief. We've, we haven't walked with God. We, haven't been, we didn't grow up in a religious family, but there's something that feels like it's pulling us to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Do you know what I'm talking about? And we're kind of dabbing our toes in this, the water of faith. If that's you, that's beautiful. I'm so glad you're here. And yet others of us are kind of the opposite, the flip side of that, where we have grown up in faith. We have grown up in a church family. We, we've, all we've known is religion, but all of a sudden it seems like our faith is like sand that's slipping through our fingers and we don't know what to do, but we're just here trying our best. It's also a really amazing place to be in that you're here, actually, and honest. But wherever we are, belief is something that's central to us as a people of faith. We're going to investigate what's, what's this church family's statement of faith. Where are we? Now, if you're if you're new here, if this is one of your first weeks, you're probably, you, there's a good chance you're familiar with our statement of faith because that's one of those check marks on the checklist of when you're church shopping, what you investigate before you step foot in the church, right? I haven't church shopped for a long time, so I don't really remember, but I'm just, like, you probably, you go to the website, and that's the first indicator of whether I want to be part of the church family or not, the website, right? If it's antiquated, 15 years old, obviously first-generation stuff, I don't know if I can be part of that church family. I want some clean Apple-like design that's popping, that looks good, that looks like they get it. Then we go there, maybe our next stop is, let me check out the most recent sermon. I want to check out maybe five to seven minutes. I don't have time for 30 or 35, but I want to check out a few minutes just to make sure the teaching is relevant, right? We need that. It's inspiring. I need that. And maybe a little challenging, not too challenging. (laughs) Nobody wants that. 
Then maybe we look at the photos, because the photos, it, it, there has to be some good-looking people there. Like, I, I, I need to make sure it's a fresh environment, really cool, right? Not making a generalization here. That's probably how a majority of you millennials, if you're checking out churches, that's how you would go about doing things. Those of us who are older, for you baby boomers, here comes another generalization. There's probably one place and one place only that you do your church shopping through on the website, if you're looking online at all. And that is the statement of faith. Am I right? You look at the statement of faith to see where does, where does this church align? Is it biblical? Is it, is it a Bible-based church? And if it has all the right check marks or most of them, you know, or some of them might be off, but there, I can, I can, it's okay. Then we can step foot in that church. Statements of faith, they're really important to us. And if you've looked at Bruce City Church's statement of faith, you'll have found that it's not really a normal statement of faith. First of all, most statements of faith that churches have have bullet points. That's just the only thing about statements of faith. They're just all bullet points, and they start out, and some of them are extremely exhausted, have, have subheadings on them even. It's like a college syllabus. We don't have bullet points on ours, and actually where ours begins is not with a bullet point, but with a disclaimer. If you look at Bruce City Church's statement of faith, you'll find a disclaimer, the fine print that you normally put at the bottom. It begins with an asterisk. It begins with a statement about what the statement of faith is and what the statement of faith isn't. And that's a really important beginning place for us when we talk about what we believe here at Bruce City Church. So we're going to, you don't have, if you want to, you can look up our website on, on your phone and it's going to slow everything down or you can just watch up here on the, on the screen. This is how our statement of faith begins. The following is a testimony of who we are. Our identity as individuals and as a church family. It is not a collection of beliefs designed to exclude those who disagree or a litmus test for whether one is allowed to join us in worship and the discovery of God. There are no prerequisites for what you need to believe or how you need to live in order to join us at our church gatherings. And I want to change that, actually. Hopefully by next week we can change it if the elders agree that it says in order to join us in our church family. We hope this is an easy way for you to understand what is important to us and what beliefs we think are important for a follower of Jesus Christ. We do believe there are some important facets of our Christian faith that we need to transparently identify and bear witness to. These facets are rooted in both the Holy Scriptures and affirmed throughout the history of the church. You will also notice that there are some specific things not mentioned here. This is intentional. We have seen Christians, fellow members of the one family of God, divided and separated by walls of hostility that have been built by arguments over statements of faith. We want to recognize these tensions and see this statement of faith as a tool, not a scriptural mandate, but a tool to encourage engagement. When we think about who's in, this question of who's in and who's out, who's included and who's excluded from this family of God, from belonging in this church family, not a whole lot of churches would say this. Now, forgive me for a little bit for getting a little, I'm going to bash the church a little bit. I love the church, but I've, 
not a whole lot of churches would say this, but there's this implicit idea that you need to believe a certain way and behave a certain way in order to be welcomed into this church family. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I used to work just a couple blocks away at Water Street Brewery. It's just an average restaurant. But there were above average people who worked there. I was this church kid, grew up all the way from my childhood through my youth. I was a sheltered church kid. I had always hung around church people. And then I, I, I went from interning at Umbra Church to working at Water Street Brewery, and my eyes just got, whoa, opened up. There were, I was the only follower of Jesus that I knew of there. There were people who loved to party. There were people who worked hard and party hard as well. There are people who were straight, there are people who were gay or lesbian, and at that point I was kind of freaked out by them. But what I found was that these were salt-of-the-earth people. These were amazing people that I grew to fall in love with. And when they heard that I was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I even wanted to be a pastor, I said. Their eyes got big like saucers. And they would say... I. I'd love to check out church, but I don't feel like I'd be welcome in a million years. And actually, that's where the dream of this came about, because I wanted a place where anybody would feel welcome. But you know as well as I do that we see statements of faith in the church as a litmus test of whether you can belong or not, whether you can be part of us. We see that list of bullet points, and it's almost as if there's checkpoints. And if you can check off a vast majority of them or every single one, you can be part of us. And these checkpoints, there's all sorts of them regarding the scriptures, first and foremost, whether we think it's inerrant or infallible or what, take them literally or how we, you have to agree with what we think about Jesus. You have to think, agree with what we think about the Trinity. You have to agree with what we think about sin, what's sin and what isn't sin. You have to agree with what we think about the last, the end times. You have to agree with what we think about the sacraments or the ordinances. You have to agree with what we think about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit does act and how the Holy Spirit doesn't act. All sorts of things. Statements of faith have kind of been the litmus test. And then there's this unwritten code of how you're supposed to live in order to be included, right? I think we all know people who feel like I can't be included in that. I've got to ask, friends, because this is a reality in much of the church. How did we get to this place? How did a people who say they were founded on the gospel, who stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ, become so tribal and isolated and judgmental? How did a people who say they follow Jesus become so unwelcoming and stiff-arm people because of the way they look, the way they act, what they do, what they believe, what they don't believe? How did we get here? I feel like part of the way that we got here is because we see the statement of faith as the gatekeeper of whether you can belong or not, whether you're welcomed or not. Now, some of you may be thinking, this sounds like a bunch of postmodern, post-Christian, unscriptural mumbo-jumbo. And yes, thank you very much, this will be my last week here. Unscriptural, huh? Are you sure? Let's just crack open the Gospels, if you will, this thing that we say we, we, we root ourselves in and stand upon. Let's open the Gospels 
See, because I feel like we say we stand on the Gospels, but we never actually read the Gospels because we might be challenged. See, because when you actually open the Gospels, you're challenged by this Jesus who is scandalous and offended religious people just like us. When you open the Gospels, you actually might offend the people that we're supposed to be friends with. Let's see what Jesus did. We're going to open in, in Luke 5. Luke, Luke 5 through probably about 7 or so is this dramatic narrative of Jesus versus the religious leaders. In, in other words, it's this dramatic narrative of Jesus versus people like you and I, like most of us. Me, for sure, religious leader. We find Jesus, he's, he's, he's calling his first disciples, he's healing people, he's delivering them. In the text right before what we're going to read, he, he heals a paralyzed man and he forgives him his sins. And the religious leaders are going nutso. Who in the world are you to forgive sins? And there's this tension begins building. And then in Matthew... Matthew 5, 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Now, stop. To us, it's just a couple of words, but to the original readers and hearers of the story, they go, whoa. I'm glad Jesus is passing by this tax collector because he can put him in his place. This traitor. This one who, who's robbing from God's people in order to, to pay off the Roman oppressors. The one who's lining his own pockets, making his own people impoverished. Put one on him, Jesus. It says, Jesus saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth doing his dirty business. And Jesus said, follow me. Two words. Who's in? Who's included? To the tax collector, he says, you're included. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house because that's what you do. That's what sinful, broken people do when they find healing and redemption and life in Jesus. They celebrate. And a large crowd, large crowd of those excluded outsiders, the tax collectors and others, were eating with them. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders who belonged to their sect, they complained to Jesus' disciples and says, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You're getting this all wrong! And Jesus said, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I just want you to know, Jesus is being a little sarcastic here. What he's not saying is, hey, you religious leaders, you guys are righteous. You're all good. Don't worry about it. I haven't come for you. I've come from all these heathens. What he's most likely mostly saying is, you guys think you're righteous. And there's actually, your ears are full of muck. You can't even hear what I have to bring. See, these outsiders, they get it. They get my gospel. They get my grace. They get the radical, scandalous nature of who God is. I've come for them. You go further in Luke 6, and we see this dramatic narrative of tension with the religious people building. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. Now, one Sabbath means a lot to ancient Jewish readers again. On a Sabbath means there's all sorts of rules. You want the most rules you could ever have in the week? Try living on the Sabbath as a Jewish person. 
there's, in the, especially for these Torah-believing Jewish people, there's all sorts of things you can and can't do. And one little thing is ripping a piece of grain, rubbing it open so you get the kernels out, and eating. That's considered work. You can't do it. If you wanted to be excluded, do something like that. But yet Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and his disciples begin to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And the religious leaders were furious. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, did you, have you ever read, read the scriptures that you say you know so familiarly? Did you see when David and his, and his people did the same thing? They, they ate the bread that was consecrated for the priests and his companions. And he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I have come and the Sabbath doesn't serve me or I, I don't serve the Sabbath, it serves me. Another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, break the law. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, hey, can you come up here and stand in front of everyone? Just imagine, I do this. So he got up and he stood there, and he's got this shriveled hand. Jesus said, hey, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to evil? To save life or destroy it? He looked around in the mall, at the mall, and their mouths dropped to the floor. Because Jesus got them. See, so they knew the good answer of a Torah-believing Jewish person would say, you're not supposed to do any work, so you're supposed to wait till tomorrow to heal them. But Jesus knew the spirit, the heart of the law. He came to introduce us to this heart of God, and he said, God is about setting people free. God is about healing people, whether it's the Sabbath or not. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss one with one another what they might do. Then Jesus calls his 12 apostles, he appoints them, and then it says this in verse 17 of Luke 6. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, you're still safe, but then from the coastal region, entire and Sidon, people who were on the outside who had come near to hear and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried coming to touch him because power was coming from them and he was healing them all. Now again, there's stuff between the lines here. These people with diseases, some of them had diseases that made them actually unclean. Some of them had diseases that made them excluded from the faith community. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't be near them because if you did, you yourself was considered unclean. If you, had, if you were demon-possessed, you were considered unclean, excluded on the outside. But here, God comes in the flesh, and he's offending the religious people like us, the insiders, and he's welcoming the excluded outsiders. And then he begins to say crazy things. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Does that resonate with anyone? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, who feel like you're spiritual and physical. Whatever that hunger is feels like it can't be satisfied, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Does that resonate with anyone in the room? 
Blessed if you weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when you become an outsider and insult you and reject your name as evil because of me. Jesus is taking the whole religious code and turning it on its head and saying, the outsiders are now inside. Who's in? Who's included? Jesus turned this question on its head and started a scandal in the religious world that he lived in. And it's not just the Gospels, I want you to know. If you, if you now look at Luke's second volume in the book of Acts, the first half of the book of Acts, really Acts 1 through 15, and especially Acts 8 through 15, it's this dramatic story of the church leaders coming to grips with this question, who's in? Who's included? Who's excluded? They, they had this grid. They had this rule book where they know who was included and who was excluded. But it seemed like God's doing something new here. If you look at Acts 6 and 7, it's, the, it's this beautiful confession of Stephen, and then he's murdered for it. He's the first martyr. And when Stephen is murdered, a great persecution breaks out in the church, it says in the first, half of, in the first part of Acts 8. And as the church is spread, it's going into all these areas that Jesus called in the Great Commission to go to. To Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the gospel is spreading. And all these people who thought they were excluded, called Gentiles, are now included. If you read further in Acts 8, it starts out in verse 26 of the story of Philip, the apostle Philip, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, us good church people, we know the story, and it's kind of old news. But those two words, Ethiopian eunuch... They mean something to the original readers. First thing is Ethiopian. That meant that this person wasn't an Israelite. They weren't one of God's chosen people. They were outside of this faith community. They were outsiders looking in. And he could even, he went to Jerusalem, but he could only go so far because, because he was he, was, he couldn't be go, he goes all the way in because he wasn't an Israelite. He was excluded from the inner circle. He, had, he was an Ethiopian. He had one strike against him to the church leaders, but then he was also a eunuch. Now, a eunuch is this kind of antiquated thing that they still do in India. It's kind of weird. We don't think about it very much, but you know what a eunuch is, right? A eunuch is, especially in this world, a eunuch is a person who either as a young person or as a little boy even had their genitals cut off. And mostly they would do this because a eunuch would, would serve in a royal court. They would serve a king or a queen or an influential person in a royal court. And if you were a eunuch, you weren't seen as a sexual threat. They were a safe person. But eunuchs were also seen as something else. Eunuchs were seen as a sexual deviant. Because what happens, and I'm sorry to say this over and over again, but happen, what happens when you cut off your genitals is your hormones are all mixed around and changed. And you grow up, you should have been growing up a boy into a man, and you start having these feminine, effeminate features. You don't look like a normal man. And your hormones are all changed, so you start, your voice sounds more feminine. And people didn't know what to do with them, so they would grow up and they would look more feminine. Some of them would even wear makeup and play into this more effeminate 
sexuality, and they were seen as asexual and agendered. They didn't know how to put them in a box. There was no box you could fit these ones in. They were sexual outsider. And this is the one that God speaks to Philip, and he says, hey, go share the gospel with that one. And Philip shares the gospel with this outsider, this one who's been excluded, and the gospel of Jesus overwhelms him, and he's full of love for Jesus, and he says, yes, yes, I want, I want to follow Jesus and everything that comes with him. You said that it's my job to believe and be baptized. There's a body of water over there. What can stop me from being baptized? And Philip says, well, let's talk about a few things. First, you're Ethiopian. You're part of this people group who does, has these weird pagan rituals. Can we talk about how you're going to have to disassociate yourself from all that stuff? You're going to have to step outside of your culture. We, we got some things to talk about. And then you're a eunuch. You're this kind of, can, can you can, make sure you don't wear makeup? Can you be a little bit more masculine? Can you fit into our roles, our boxes? You won't find that in Acts 8. You'll find the Ethiopian eunuch saying yes to Jesus, and he sees this body of water, and he says, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be baptized. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And Philip says, absolutely nothing. See, because of Jesus, now you're included. You were once in this box that was excluded, outsider, outside looking in. Now you're part of the family of God. Nothing can stand in the way of you being baptized. This is what we find in the book of Acts in the early church is this, this debate over who's included and the excluded now being included because of Jesus. We find in the New Testament that Jesus began this revolution and he, 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 he gave us a new answer to this question of who's in. So when we talk about our statement of faith and we ask who's included, what we believe when you ask who's included is every single person. What we believe where our statement of faith begins is that you don't even have to agree with our statement of faith to belong to this church family. What we believe is that the love of Jesus has overwhelmed all our boxes and categories in such a way that all are now included and not all are given an open-armed embrace in Jesus and we're called the church to be that embrace. So it means that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how you identify, no matter what your orientation is, no matter what your lifestyle is, no matter what your choices have been, you're included, you're in the family. And what that also means is that if you call yourself a Christian, but you say you're a Calvinist and we're not, we love you and you're included. If, you're an Armin, if you identify with more of an Arminian doctrine or even open theism, you're not going to get a label heretic around here. You're going to get the label family. And we're going to figure it out together. What that means is that if you have different opinions on the end times than we in leadership do, we love you and you're included in the family. That means that if you think that the Bible is inerrant, or if you think the Bible is infallible, or you think we should take the Bible literally, or if you think that we should absolutely not take it literally, we love you, and you're in the family, and we want to learn from one another and walk closer and closer to the truth we find in Jesus. It means that no matter what you think about hell, 
heaven and hell and eternal destinies. If you're a universalist Christian and annihilationist or you believe in a literal, actual place called hell, we love you and you're included in the family. And we want to journey in discovery through the scriptures and the, in the in, inspiration of the Holy Spirit towards truth. Now, some, some of us might be thinking, man, is this a universalist, Unitarian church? It's not because we're a Unitarian, Universalist church that believes that, that, that embraces all gods and all faith traditions and all backgrounds and all histories and all, all that stuff. It's because, actually, we are unapologetic, unabashed followers and lovers of Jesus. And this is why we say every single person is included. Every person is part of the family of God. No matter where, where, where you find yourself or what you find yourself doing, what your history is, where you've been, we want to give you the open-armed embrace of the Father because of what we find in the scandalous thing called the gospel of Jesus. Would you like to worship this God who's included each and every one of us? Would you like to worship this God who says, I want you to throw your doors open and embrace all who would walk in because that is what I do. Would you like to be challenged by this Jesus and then worship him? Let's stand, friends. Jesus, I want to tell you, I enjoy being part of a movement that doesn't, doesn't affirm my insecurities and my judgments and my, my, my stereotypes, but it actually pushes on them and it challenges them. I like being part of a big, diverse family where we can disagree and choose love over our opinions. I like being part of a family where it's safe to talk and, and, and disagree, but we love one another. I love being part of this family where the very people around me challenge me. I love being part of this kingdom that challenges the ways of the world, Jesus, our tribal judgmental, isolating ways of this world. I love being part of this movement where it says that you, Jesus, are bringing all people together. You and your cross have torn down the dividing wall of hostility between races, between ethnic groups, between sexuality, between beliefs. You have torn them down in your cross and you've made all of us one. And so would you come and have your way here? We come and we sing and announce in our own hearts and in this place and in this city. If you're feeling weak, if you're feeling empty and broken, if you're feeling like a failure, if you're feeling like you're on the outside looking in, would you come? Would you come and welcome and enjoy this embrace that you've been given in Jesus? We announce it now and we proclaim it in our hearts and in this place, in this city that needs it so desperately. We worship you, Jesus. We're going to worship, and if you have anything you'd love prayer for, I've got two friends in the back, Jess and Kristen. They're amazing. They'd love to pray for you about anything. And as, as that happens, let's fill this place with this beautiful con symphony of the Holy Spirit of prayer and worship.